take your Bibles, head back to Genesis, Genesis 11. We are continuing our apologetic series, Fact or Fiction, and um, I want to just give God praise for a couple of things and a couple of notices. I know it's not Easter weekend, but he is still alive, okay? He's still risen, so we can still celebrate a living Lord. I do want to mention that last week it took a lot of people and a lot of work to do the Good Friday experience. We're grateful for that, for Saturday service, for Sunday services. There were four weekend services, and let me say a couple of things about that. Number one, in all four of those, people gave their life to Jesus Christ and got saved. So God gets the glory for that first. The people were saved. We also celebrated, I think it was seven baptisms over the weekend, and God brought to grace um, last Easter weekend about 5,000 total worshipers. So it was an incredible weekend with a lot of folks, a lot of worship, but we give him the glory. In fact, I'd be scared to death not to give God all the glory for that, especially in light of what I've been studying and what I'm going to present to you today. Real quick, by way of um, repeating, sort of reminding you where we've been, I spent a while, in fact, about nine messages, might have even been ten, I think it was nine, though, um, in the flood narrative from Genesis 6 through Genesis 9, we spent a lot of time. We talked about a storm is brewing and we must be prepared. We looked at the world is underwater, then high and dry, and then I said it's a whole new world. That was sort of where we left off before we took a break leading up to Easter. There was a whole new world. I'm, I'm going to do a quick flyover of chapter 10. If you have an open Bible or you can click and swipe, look at chapter 10 for a moment. Most of the time it's described as the table of nations. It looks like a simple genealogical record of Noah's family. Looks like the sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth have been um, scattered around a little bit and they are beginning to create their own uh, families and people groups in this sort of post-Diluvian, post-flood world. In a nutshell, it really is the rise of the nations. How do we get the nations? But Babel, or Babel if you prefer, I'm going to use the more standard English pronunciation of Babel, but that, this account today really explains more to us. But I want you to pay special note of 8, 9, and 10. So if you've got a Bible and you're looking at Genesis 8, 9, and 10, it introduces us to a mighty warrior or a hunter named Nimrod. And Nimrod was a descendant of Ham through Cush. He's named as the founder of the first Mesopotamian kingdom, the civilization that later we would know as Assyria and Babylonia, or you would hear Babylon. And so God ordained government. We know that in the Bible. He ordained government to restrain evil, but Nimrod very quickly prostituted that concept and developed in the Bible the very first known kingdom. And to have a kingdom wasn't necessarily God's first intent. He preferred a theocracy with God at the head. But in this kingdom, Nimrod is really trying to um, overthrow God's authority. And what we'll end up finding is that what stems from Nimrod is this uh, situation at Babel. And um, these world systems very, very quickly turn idolatrous. I learned some things in studying this, although I've read it countless times, I learned a lot out of my Genesis 11 study that I never knew. Maybe some things you haven't known either. I don't know, but Nimrod really is reminiscent of the wicked warriors at the time of the flood, those great and mighty men, some say giants. I say it doesn't need to be translated that way. Those wicked warriors. And so what we find is that Assyria, Babylon, those type nations end up being really the arch enemies of the land, uh, the people of Israel the people of God. And so what we find here is this prideful surge, to use a sort of Noah language, this wave of pride that, that begins to swell around Noah's descendants. And so I'm calling it the pitfalls of pride. Now, does that screenshot remind anybody of anything from childhood? You kind of have to be a kid of the 80s or a retro gaming nerd. Um, and I'm kind of both of those a little bit. I have a multicated home with about 400 old games, and I don't do any of the new stuff, but I just purchased a digital copy of Pitfall, singular with an exclamation point. Pitfall came out in 82 by Activision, and it was played on the incredibly graphic-intensive Atari 2600. Did anybody else have the joy of having Atari 2600 and the Pong? Boop, boop. 
and you had the joystick. And if you remember, uh, let's look at another slide of that. Let's just look. So there was the game, right? You remember the cartridges that you had to jam in? And it was a lot of fun. And then you could even, I played this the other night. You could even get onto the gator's heads, reminding me of living in Florida. You just jump over the gators, right? And so that's sort of making fun of pitfall. Look at that incredibly graphic cobra in the corner. Do y'all see how intense we had it as kids? It was scary. The cobra, the pixelated scorpion, it's awesome. So pitfall was a game. But in the real world, pitfalls are not a game. If any of you have seen the village M. Night Shyamalan, you saw a pitfall. They were used. In fact, in some nations, they are still used both to trap animals and humans. Look at one. Now that's pretty scary. You cover that over, light brush, something comes walking or running down that trail, they're going to have a very, very bad day. I would say physically, that is terrifying, that is destructive, and let's be honest, that's most likely deadly. Spiritually, I will tell you that the things we're going to talk about today related to pride, they are the very same. They are terrifying. They are destructive. And guys, listen carefully to me now. They are deadly. What we're going to talk about today is really a subject of life or death. Rather than using a particular verse from the text, though, I went to Proverbs. Proverbs has a lot to say about this. In fact, pride is a subject taken up all over the Bible. And so I want you to look at Proverbs 16, 18 with me, and I just want us to say it out loud together. I want you to let it penetrate past your ears, though, into your head and down into your heart. Let's say this, and let's take it to heart today. You ready? Pride goes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. I learned it in the old King James, pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Haughty, arrogant. Uh, pride, so when it says pride goes before destruction, I want you to see a parade. And I want you to see the one leading the parade as pride. And if you're willing to follow that leader, which is no leader at all, but if you're willing to follow, destruction awaits you. And always, listen to me, always, 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 a fall is on the horizon. Now, you may know very, very prideful people that died and never got caught in their pride. I promise you when they stand before their maker, there's a fall coming. Pride goes before destruction, an arrogant spirit before a fall. That being said, this is a fascinating section of Scripture. After this, guys, we're going to start jumping a little bit episodically. I want to introduce you. We'll be, in, we'll be in Genesis a couple more months. Then we're going to break out and go finish Hebrews. But I promise you we're going to take the big snapshots of Abram, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who wrestles with God and is renamed Israel. We're going to see how the 12 tribes come to be, the 12 tribes of Israel. And really, if you haven't gone on the website and considered Egypt, please prayerfully consider taking that trip with Miss Cindy and I next year at this time because we're going to walk where Moses walked. We're going to walk the land of the wilderness wanderings. We're going to go where the Holy Family fled into Egypt when Herod was killing all the little boys. We're going to go and, and learn some things spiritually. We're going to do some tourism type things, hang out on the Nile. We're going to do a lot of great things, but it's going to help us understand all that we're leading up to, which of course then is Exodus, all right? So stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word. I know you guys have probably heard the story I hope God will teach you something like he's been teaching me. I really, I feel like I learned as much from this as any exercise I've had in a very long time. Just good reminders in my life. Now, the whole earth had one language and one lip or one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. So they're coming from what we would call Near East into what we now call the Middle East, okay? Antiquity, it would have been what we call Near East. Now they're going into the Middle East, and I'll explain that. And they dwelt there. These are the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And then they said, now to me, verse 4 is where the red flags really start popping. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, not a name for our God, a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. 
But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down. You see this intra-divine language. Let us go down. Let's go there and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. Let me take one quick aside. Some pastors and scholars have said this is where we have racial division beginning. So skin colors and all that. That is not what the Bible teaches. I will not teach it that way. The text doesn't allow me to teach it that way. Uh, I don't believe that's true. I believe that diversity comes as people multiply. Uh, What we do know, though, is that nations, languages, and populace around the globe are now spreading. This says nothing, though, about the ethnos or the ethnicity of the people. So we find the confusion of language, and so the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, or again, Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all of the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, what, what an incredible passage. I've heard this, I guess, my whole life. But I never really considered how significant it was. And when I think about what the people of early Babylonia and the Caesarean area were were attempting to do, God, I find myself trying to do the very same thing sometime. And how foolish it is that we could work our way up to you. You have to rend the heavens and come down, as it were. And so I pray today that we would um, listen for ourselves, but we would listen for others also that we care deeply about because, um, God, you know how impactful this subject is in my own life and my own story and my own journey to get here. And so I just pray that we would be open to learning from your word and spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, guys, so would you be seated, and if you're a note taker, jot down this first truth on your listening guide. Pride causes us to crave the recognition of others more than a real relationship with God. We crave the recognition of others more than the real relationship with God. This is what pride will do to us. This text fundamentally is about attempting, you, you could say that this text is fundamentally about idolatry, which would be true, but I think again, when we unpack the language more closely, it's more to do with let us, let us, let us, look at us, aren't we great? Look at what we've accomplished. The whole earth had one language and one tongue, one speech, one lip, literally in the Hebrew. And so they traveled into this land of Shinar and they stayed there. And they said, look, let's bake these bricks. Let's come together and let's build us a city and let's build us a tower that's going into the heavens. I often like to say phrases like this. We've got to learn to live life for an audience of one. We've got to learn to really just care about putting a smile on God's face. I have learned as a pastor now in the month of May starting year 25, um, I cannot make everybody happy. There, it is a to- if I think about writing a sermon that's going to make everybody happy, I'll go crazy. In fact, I don't think I'll make anybody happy, much less the Lord. So years ago, I had to decide, is it about an audience of one and what God thinks about your fidelity to the text, or is it about what the people want to hear? Because the Bible says in the latter days they'll heap up for themselves teachers that'll scratch those itching ears, right? And so I definitely think it's important to live life for an audience of one. Back in the day, um, in our first church for many years, we did the old lying line. Y'all know the lying line where they come out and tell the preacher how good he did, but really half of them were asleep. Y'all remember that? The lying line. And I remember shaking a lot of hands and using a lot of whatever Germex was called at that time. And I remember that... um, you would hear comments, especially in my early 20s, you'd hear comments like, oh man, you're like the next little Billy Graham and this and that. And that stuff will go to your head real fast. If you don't constantly come back and say, I am nothing, apart from the grace of God, God takes nobodies and makes them somebodies. But I am nobody, I am nothing apart from him. And I love, I love receiving an encouraging email or text. And this Grace family, of all the places I've served, God's been good to our family. We've really seen God do wonderful things. But you are, hands down, the most encouraging place we've ever been. Now, because of our footprint out there in the world, I get the nasty stuff too. Believe me, there's not all um, roses and butterflies. 
But your words of encouragement always seem to hit at the, just the perfect time in the week. Some of you that shoot something on a Monday morning, a preacher's Monday morning is not normally his favorite time. And I will just tell you that um, it means the world to me. But I have to temper the kind things that people say with the fact that any good thing is a gift from God. Any good message, any good decision, any good thing we do, any good move with staff, all of that is a gift from the Lord. And I never, ever want God's hand to be removed from grace, um, from this ministry. I would rather God just kill me before he calls me to be a stumbling block to you or to this ministry or to the school, to our students. Um, the account of Babel is simultaneously one of the saddest and most momentous passages in the Bible. It's one of the saddest because God broke them down and scattered them around. It's one of the most momentous because it really is the birth of the nations. And there's nothing inherently wrong with building a tower, by the way. Babel was a feat of architectural beauty. But we must remember what God had said. In Genesis 9-1 and Genesis 9-7, God had said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. There's a, a, an idea there of being scattered abroad. Populate the earth, fill it abundantly, multiply in it. These are the instructions God gave. And so the people get the word from God and they say, okay, God's never going to destroy us with a flood again. Look at that rainbow. It reminds him, and it reminds us, but it reminds him we're not going to be destroyed. And so they're walking along and they're heading eastward and they find this fertile valley. It's a valley between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. It's between, it's, it's modern day Iraq today. That's why it's Middle Eastern. Modern day. They find this beautiful fertile valley and they go, wow. This looks like a great place. I think we'll hang here for a while. Let's build a great city right here. And God said, whoa, no, I told you, you got to go. You got to fill this earth. And they said, no, we like it here. And so that's what they did. And they stayed and they began to disobey the Lord. They stopped spreading out. And so now you have Babylon, literally Babel, Babel, Babylon. You have this nation beginning to form. And human pride leads these people to defy their God. They refuse to move. And Nimrod is sort of leading the charge with his own kingdom concept. And what is wrong with the Tower of Babel? Well, the people did what was convenient, not what was commanded. You ever known people that do what's convenient rather than what's commanded? I mean, it seemed wiser to congregate and build a metropolis. And I would argue that modern men and women aren't much different. We say, surely God's not really saying what he said. I mean, look how beautiful the land is here. I don't want to leave here. God didn't really mean, he meant you go populate the earth. He didn't mean me. He meant you go scatter abroad. He didn't mean me. Surely God will understand if I fudge on this commandment. Surely given our modern situation, we shouldn't take it all so serious. It's the revision of the devilish question the serpent brought to Eve and Adam with her in Genesis 3, 1. You remember the devilish question? Has God indeed said? We would say it maybe in our way of saying, did God really say that? You sure God said that? I want you to jot this down. Do you have any has God indeed said issues in your past or in your present? You don't have to say them out loud. You can, but uh, you see I left you a blank. You can jot it down. For me, yes, I did. I had some things. Um, in my dating life, and my partying life, in my employment life, um, as a Christian, I knew that, that I shouldn't be doing those things, and yet I kind of fudged on, did God really mean that? That was written a long time ago. I've got one now that I, I truly do deal with a lot. You ever go up to a red light and you're behind somebody, and when it turns green, does your hand just by instinct go to the horn, like real quick? I give, I'm very gracious. I normally give 1.5 to 2.0 seconds before I lay into it. I try to give them time. But you know, what irritates me is when I can obviously see their head is down looking at something. This is the time we drive. I, I took my sweetie away. We don't give gifts much to each other. We'll give experiences. So I bought us a little bed and breakfast thing to Biltmore. We had never seen Biltmore in the spring. We wanted to see the flowers. And so this weekend, we were going over Thursday afternoon, and uh, we got through the gorge going to Asheville, and there was a big truck that decided he was going to mitigate how fast everyone went. And he nearly wrecked us and several other people, and he rode the middle line for a while. And um, so I got pictures, and I started calling. We probably made half a dozen calls. You love it when I do things like this, right, sweetheart? And so I, I'm, I'm getting 
more and more agitated and less and less like Jesus. Y'all act like I'm the only one that ever gets mad at people acting stupid on the road. Does anybody else lose your religion? I mean, just literally you lose it when, because you're like, you moron, moron is a biblical word, by the way, moronis, it's in the Greek. I'm just telling y'all, idiotes is in the Greek. It's right there in your Bible. Trust your pastor, they're biblical. It's not cool when you hear your three-year-old granddaughter say it, though, I'll tell you that. Sorry, Heather, Parker. Um, I mean, more than once, I I know I've upset my sweetheart with my road reactions. We had a great trip, but that was a bad way for me to go ballistic for a while. Thankfully, we were able to get off and enjoy a great lunch and then head on over to our little B&B for for a couple nights. But I struggle with that. And, you know, has God indeed said that you should be patient and (laughs) long-suffering? Has God indeed said? I mean, this was written before there were 18-wheelers on the road, y'all. There weren't any stoplights. Surely God would understand if I gave a Hawaiian wave. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. The people said, let us make a name for ourselves. And it seems to be the mantra of our age. Let me make a name for myself. What I wear, what we drive. Pastor wanting the bigger, better church. Pharisees loving to be seen doing religious deeds. Self-promotion. It seems to be the air we breathe in a Western world. Self-promotion. Look at me, look at me, look at me, look at us. And the chief goal had shifted very quickly from glorifying God and enjoying him forever to their own renown. And, you know, that's going to be our trap, Grace. If we're not super-duper careful, I keep telling our pastors, please don't do anything dumb. Stay out of God's way. This is not about me or you. It's not about us. It's always been about him. The church was here before I got here or you got here, and it will be here long after we're gone if the Lord doesn't rapture us out. And if you're still here in this church after the rapture, you're not really part of God's church, okay? So you missed it. The reality is that it's very easy when God is blessing so greatly to take even for a split second the glory that belongs to the Lord. But this is even more serious than look at us. And I didn't know this until deeply studying the text. The Tower of Babel would have actually been what we call a ziggurat. Maybe y'all knew this. I was ignorant, I did not. It was a stair-stepped, pyramid-shaped edifice whose, quote, top reached the heavens. That was a common description um, carved into these ancient Mesopotamian ziggurats. So let's look at one. So that's kind of a picture of what we're talking about, okay? The stairs or to the heavens. Now, literally, it was called a stairway to heaven, It's not just a song. Um, It was an attempt to gain by human effort what only God could give. In other words, look at us, look at our fame, look at our fortune. Uh, They didn't have a lot of rocks in this area, so they learned to bake bricks in this this valley. And so they're building in these squarish, rectangular-ish bricks. And then in the top, here's what was fascinating to me. The top of the ancient ziggurat is a room of refreshment for the God or the gods of the area. I didn't know this. In other words, the ziggurat, what happens at Babel is essentially the foundations of pagan worship. What they're saying is we need to take some bananas or some food up to God and and take some water. And you say, that's the silliest thing I've ever heard of. Modern man would never do such. You should visit a Hindu temple. There's a huge one in the Raleigh-Durham area I've been to, and I've watched people, watched them bring in their milk and their bananas. I watched a lady bring in a whole pack of Oreo cookies and set it in front of a three-foot marble statue. And I thought, man, I'd like some Oreos, but I'm not to eat food sacrificed to idols, so I shouldn't eat the Oreos. I watched this happen, well-dressed, probably on on a... scale, probably intelligent people, probably some doctors and lawyers and nurses and folks around the Raleigh-Durham area. And I've been to India many, many times and of course seen lots and lots of worship to the gods, little g, and the sacrifices. And this is really the beginnings of such things. This top room, you, you, did y'all see the top room? Y'all saw it, right? I think at the top. Y'all scoot that back. You see the little room I'm talking about, right? The very top. The priest of the day would walk up and they would, they would leave the food. The ziggurat was an architectural representation of this pagan religious development of the period. Listen to this. When the deity was transformed into the image of man, 
That's not what the Bible teaches, guys. It's, it's we are made in the image of God. But if you even study uh, the rampant polytheism of Hinduism, what you find is that the deities look like people or maybe people with different anthropomorphic features or animals, elephants and monkeys and things of the like. And so what happens is we make God in our image or in the image of things around us. And they said, let us make a name for ourselves. By implication, when they built the tower, they were saying, and our gods. Not the God, but our gods. And consider what Psalm 115.1 says. Not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory, O God, because of your love and faithfulness. Not to us, but they were saying yes to us. All the glory be to us because pride causes us to crave the recognition of others more than a real relationship with the one true and living God. They wanted to make themselves a name, but secondly, did you see, they don't want to be scattered. God said, go, 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 and they said, no, we like it here. We think we'll stay. And they wanted to, now I want to correct one error if we're not careful. To make a name for oneself is not a bad thing if God initiates it. If you read a little later for Abram, God said to Abram, Abraham, I will make your name great. God would tell David, I will make you a great name. To have God make your name great is one thing. To have you make your name great is an entirely different thing. I want to leave a legacy for my children. I tell my kids pretty regularly the name Lewis matters, and it should matter to you. You represent Christ. You represent this church because they're all here. You represent this Lewis name, or for some of them now, the Levacy name or the Keith name. You represent these names. And so to have legacy should not be confused with pride, but we must be careful because not only does pride cause us to crave crave the recognition of others more than a real relationship with God. Look at this though. God scatters the proud and brings them down. And then we'll go to some other texts to discover, but he exalts the humble. Now y'all know that if you've been in church long, go back to the verse we started with. Pride goes before destruction, an arrogant, prideful, haughty spirit before a fall. Look what happens. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. This is a fascinating section. Indeed, the people are one. They have one language, and now nothing they propose will be withheld from them. Interesting. Their arrogant defiance would soon result in disbandment. The Lord came down to see. Now, that's not the only time the Bible says that. It's kind of a funny way of saying God is omniscient. He already knows everything, but it puts him again, anthropomorphically coming as we would go to see something. So I think it's kind of interesting. The Bible says that God came down to see the multiplied wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. We'll get there. That's in the text, of course, Genesis 18. We're heading that way one of these days. And God came to see it. It's not that God couldn't see it from the throne room of heaven. God can see all. He sees the end from the beginning. He knows the first and the last because he is the first and the last. But it is so ironic. The people said, let us build a tower that goes to the heavens. And God in his throne says, your tower's so tiny, I have to come down to see it. You think you're all that in a bag of chips. You are not. I will come and see. But it's fascinating to me that God then says, anything they propose to do will happen. Does that mean God is scared? Does that mean God is saying, oh no, man communicates within himself. And in the heavenly council, he said, let us go see. Let us scatter them. That means Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It could mean a holy uh, council. It could be maybe Michael or Gabriel. It could be God talking to holy angels. But he's saying, look, These people can do anything. No, 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 no. Doesn't mean nothing will be impossible for them in the good. The language actually means nothing will be impossible for them in the bad, the degradation. You see how pre-flood, the thoughts and intents of the heart were on wickedness continually and evil. God is now saying, because they have stopped obeying already, they have not scattered, they have not created the diversity of nations that I insisted upon, now their propensity for wickedness will be great if left unchecked. No rebellion will be too great for them. God restrained the people of Noah's day through the waters of the flood. And this is a do-over, a recreation. And yet now God said, I will not do it again. 
So I will create Babel out of this place. Babel is a transliteration of an Akkadian word that the scripture writers used. It's a play on words between the Akkadian and the Hebrew, and it means in the Hebrew to confuse. Unfortunately, for the people of Babylonia and the Assyrians in this area at the time, those who would become the forefathers to them, I should say, uh, in their language, Babylonia meant the gateway to the gods or the gateway of the gods. And so they had it totally wrong. But Babel, even today, we say, oh, listen to him babble. He's just babbling on. It's incoherent, right? We don't understand it. It's confusing. It's just a, a scene of noise and confusion. It's kind of reminiscent of the garden, though. There's this intra-divine dialogue. One of us, let us, us, plural, go down. In both cases, it could hardly be said that heaven actually trembled because of the advancement of mankind. That would be foolishness. In fact, the more scientists look out, if you're paying attention to what's being discovered, there's always something being discovered, scientists are coming to understand just how insanely large this universe really is and how it continues to grow and expand under God and yet they they try to keep him out of the picture but it's becoming harder and harder and harder for the real honest people of science to keep the divine out of the equation it's just too grand it is too great time chance and matter could not possibly make what we now have Listen to Kenneth Matthews. He wrote in the New American Commentary, this story provides a striking contrast between human opinion of self-achievement and God's viewpoint of such endeavors. Human cooperation, when filled by autonomy and directed towards self-interest, is shown shown in the story to be shallow, impotent hubris. So if all we're doing is working together to say, look at us, look at us, look at us, and it's not for the glory of God, And truly the good of others, because that's what the Bible boils down to, folks. Loving God, loving others, right? Glory of God, the good of man. That's what the Bible boils down to. You can get fancy and cute if you want. You can be trendy all you want. But this is what our scripture is about. It's what our God desires. But when they say, look at us, look at us, look at us, there is a price to pay. Look at the screens with me. Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, Jesus was talking to the religious elitist. Jesus was talking to the dudes in long flowing robes. I used to wear full suits to preach every single week. And I do believe we should give God our best. I'm not opposed to that idea. But one of the reasons I was convicted over the type of attire that I wore some years ago and kind of scaled back and did sort of a mid-range is simply because I never wanted anybody to think if I can't dress like that, I can't approach his God. And it's not to say I have to come in rags and be tattered or torn, and I don't even think these things matter as much as we like to think they do as pastors, but I want to say that God is accessible to us all, whether blue jeans and boots or flip-flops and shorts or the nicest dress and the most, uh, you know, finest silk suit. I want to say that God is accessible, but the problem with the people of Jesus' day was they thought their long flowing robes in the exterior made them more in tune with God when Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. He said, your outside looks good, boys, but your inside's full of dead men's bones. Man, may it never be said of grace. They have a pretty exterior, but when you get inside, it's awful. I was saying to Jeff at the end of the last service, I would love for y'all to have an opportunity to come sit in on one of our all-staff meetings and see your team. Listen to your pastors and your staff all the way through the whole team, facilities. The same with GCA. It's an incredible group of men and women, an incredible, humble, thankful group, a group that's glad to be here. A group that's honored to serve here and honored to serve God and to serve you. And I hope you know that. I made a statement very early on when God brought me here to grace and God God brought our family. I said in in the all staff, I said, look, if there are any strutting roosters in the room, your time is short. You won't be here long. Because I don't think God needs strutting roosters. Strutting roosters get their heads cut off, especially now that it's turkey season in East Tennessee. Praise God. Listen to me, y'all. The idea here is that the Bible 
all over, Old and New Testaments is replete with these kinds of verses. The hardest thing about this screen was narrowing it down. Look at the next one, James 4. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. He will lift you up. The context of that is submit to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Cleanse your hands. Purify your minds. The context is very, very simple. The devil wants you. He's coming for you. Stand firm in the faith. And do not think you can battle him on your own. Do not think you've got the power. You can have the person of the Holy Spirit within you, but without the Lord himself, you don't have the power to stand against anybody, much less the devil. But you be humble before God, and God lifts you up. Now, quoting partly from Proverbs 3.34, look at this. Peter quotes, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. That's not just self-deprecation, guys. That's really knowing any good thing I have, any good thing I've ever done is a gift from the hand of God. That every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above, from with whom there's no variation, no shadow of turning, or the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation nor shadow of turning. So when you do humble yourselves, God will exalt you in due time and just cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Now, I wrote those out. I was typing those up in my notes, going through the Scripture. I had a lot more, and I said, no, that's going to be enough to make the point. And God just wouldn't let me get to the conclusion of the message. We're about to get there, but he wouldn't let me get there without this. And I want to be very careful here because I want to be transparent, but I want to be cautious. I never exactly know who's tuned in, and I don't ever want to hurt anybody out there. But I have a life full of false stories, if you will. As a freshman at the College of William and Mary, before I even met Miss Cindy, I got a phone call about a minister in my life that meant the world to me, meant the world to me, about him leaving his wife and kids and running off with a young lady through counseling. And it didn't destroy my faith because my faith wasn't built on him, but I'll promise you it rattled me to the core. Some years later, a pastor I was close to had fallen, another pastor, another pa- I have names in my notes I wouldn't dare say aloud another pastor, several professors from my seminary days, some that I was in first service, Pastor Frank worked with some of these men, he knows them well, convention folks even recently, um, members of our church, multiple, multiple members of our church. At one time I had 13 cases of infidelity I was counseling all at the same time in our church. What was a commonality before their fall? before they were outed, if you will. And there were multiple um, scenarios of how that came out in their lives. But the, the, the common denominator in them all, guys, is simple. I wrote it in capital letters in my notes, P-R-I-D-E. There was pride. There was self-promotion. There was a look-at-me attitude. In fact, it's fascinating how Cindy responded to some of these which she found out. I, was, I had been preaching in Sydney, Australia. I had gone home. I was exhausted that night. A buddy of mine reached me on my cell. I had good um, Wi-Fi. And he said, you got to go to our mutual friend's webpage and see what's happened. And I just sat on my bed stunned, overwhelmed at what I was seeing, that a man who had been so high had fallen so far so fast. I called another buddy and we got to talking about um, how many men we knew that had fallen with women. And I said, I, I don't, I'm going to have to change. When I get back, I do a lot of counseling. I've got to change something. I'm uncomfortable with this. And he said, Bobby, maybe we've come to the point in time where glass and doors is not enough. I never forget that phrase. So I made a policy six, seven, eight years ago that when I came home, I would still offer counsel and I would still meet with women, but never alone. My wife or my assistant would always be in the room or another pastor. I would never in any case, anywhere, ever again, like the old Billy Graham rule, right, that most pastors try to live by. But in the counseling scenario, I made that a a personal thing. And then I said, everybody I work with is going to have the same policy. And from GBC to GCA all around this campus, if there's a man and a woman not related behind a closed door, I don't care if the whole door is made of glass. If I find out, they're going to be fired on the spot. It's not because you say, well, you don't trust yourself. No, I could fall. Did you just hear me? I could fall. And any of you bozos out there that say, well, I couldn't, I'd never even struggle with that. Well, you're a liar. You're a liar. And the devil's going to get you. An unguarded strength is a double weakness. You could fall. She could fall. And I know good and well the devil hates us both. 
So he could cause even a a vision of impropriety, even the form. The Bible says flee the form of evil, flee the appearance of evil. So I put some policies in place in my life, but that's not going to do it all. That's not going to do it all. In fact, I'd ask you this. Do you know others who have faced the reality of this truth? What truth am I talking about? Um, God scatters the proud and brings them down. Have you known anybody that in their pride they have taken a big fall? You probably know somebody. I know far too many. I know far, far too many. Some in ministry, Grace. You don't want to know what popped up in my Google search when I looked at you the first time. You don't want to know. I'm being honest with y'all. I'm being straight with you this morning. This stuff is serious. How are you actively keeping your name off somebody else's list? I just told you one of my policies. Another thing I do is I got to stay in the word so the word can stay in me. I got to be a man of the word, not to prepare a sermon for y'all because I need it every day. I need God just continually reminding me, you're not above anybody else. Consider yourself also lest you fall, big boy. And, And more importantly, how are you staying close and clean with the Lord? How are you guys, what are you doing proactively? Well, I don't have to worry about that. Well, my job won't allow that. Okay, then you come up with your own concepts and and processes, but I want you to be careful. Be confident in the Lord, but don't be conceited. I will never fall. I will never struggle. Well, okay, so it's not the opposite sex. What is the thorn in the flesh that so easily besets? What is it? Because you've got it. See, it's such an ironic reversal of fortunes in the text. They wanted to make a name for themselves, and now they can't even pronounce one another's names. God confuses their language. God cre- This is the creation of language. And what we find, linguistics will tell us, they can't go back to a single language, but linguist, uh, they, ling- the art of linguistics and linguists will tell us that languages can all be traced to a very small common batch, a very small batch. And then the world's languages branch off of that batch. And so we have that happening right here and it's a reminder that God opposes the proud. And, and in fact, the punishment is in line with uh, the pride. Do you notice that? The punishment's in line with the pride. That Look at us. Look at us. Look what we can build. They can't even finish the tower because God says, you won't even be able to communicate. Oh, we want to stay together. Look at this wonderful place between the rivers we're going to live. And God said, no, no, no. I told you to get out and spread around. And so now they're going to have to do that. They can... They adopted plans without consulting the Lord's will. And, and sometimes we say, why did this business deal flop? And why did this relationship sh- sour? And why did that purchase end up such a waste? When I look, the, the answers may not always be chastisement for sin, but sometimes they are. And the Bible says to commit our works to the Lord that our plans may succeed. That's Proverbs 16.3. Commit your work to the Lord that your plans may succeed. I want to close with this thought. Where does your identity lie? For the people of this area, it lied in look at us, look at us, look at us, look what we can do together apart from God's hand. Does your identity lie in your looks? I know for me, most of you think it is his astounding height and luscious hair that uh, really does it for him, right? (sighs) course mine doesn't lie in my looks who am I kidding I got the girl I'm good with it praise God I went way way over punted out punting my coverage big time I did and most of you ugly dudes out there did too so get over yourself your identity is it in your looks look keep up your body the Bible's clear about that you're to take care of the physical as I am to take care there's nothing wrong with that but where does identity lie in your money in your job you know some people that if they didn't have their job they would be nothing because it's all they can talk about it's obnoxious is your identity in that job when I go out the first thing people know about me is not normally that I'm a pastor and I don't normally talk about all of that I try to get there to to get a beeline to the gospel but that's not my identity as a man is it in your abilities academic abilities athletic abilities artistic abilities nothing wrong with those It could be in your hobbies this is the one I struggle with more than any, I struggle with this. At a wedding last night I was doing, I got to talking to an attorney about, you know, I love it. Man, if you can shoot it, if you can catch it, if you can eat it, I'm all into the outdoor world. You know that by now. I love that stuff. But I got to be careful that's not, that's not my identity. 
The guns and the Harleys and the bows and all, it can't be my identity. It can't. Even though I love this time of year and I love turkey time and all, it's not my identity. And if you took away all the the, the hunting accoutrement and all of that tomorrow, I'm going to be fine. If I didn't have a boat, if I didn't get to go, I'm going to be fine. I like those things. I thank God for those things. And I'm learning, I'm learning to thank God more for those things. The great catch, the great harvest. I'm learning to slow down and thank God more for those. But they're not my identity. But about, what about your spouse? This is also an area I tend to struggle. I love Miss Cindy, but she doesn't complete me. Christ does. He has to. My kids, my grandkids, us grandparents, man, we know. You want to see a picture? I got a thousand or more. What do you want to see about them? But my identity can't be in those because what if your athletic ability is gone? What if your job is gone and it will be one day? What if your spouse, or heaven forbid, children or grandchildren are gone? Where is your identity? Look at us. Look what we can do. No. Look at our God. Look at what our God can do. One of the things that may help me more than anything in the realm of money as I think about the shiniest gold we have is just God's asphalt. The very best in our riches, the diamonds and pearls become God's gate decorations in glory. The very best we have is really just to be walked on in glory. As the band comes up, do you find your complete identity in Christ? You can navigate the inevitable ups and downs of life if your identity is in Christ and Christ alone. Pride causes us to crave the recognition of others more than a real relationship with God. And God ultimately scatters the proud and brings them down but exalts the humble. Now, if ever there's been an example of that, guys, it's it's Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus in Philippians, Jesus humbled himself. God of gods, very God, also 100% man, humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus shows us what humility looks like. And therefore, God had highly exalted him because Jesus humbled himself. Therefore, God had highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those on earth, on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus, Jesus the Christ, he is the Son of God, he is the Savior of the world, and he says, why do we confess all of that? To the glory of God the Father. We give God the glory for Jesus the Son. Last week we celebrated a risen Savior. Guys, this week we can celebrate a risen Savior. He is still alive and on the throne right now. And every good thing that happens here is because of him. But some of y'all need to have some hard conversations with yourself, as do I, and maybe God's calling you to love someone enough have a hard conversation with them. Freshman year, William and Mary, a dear friend who I love. We've been part of one another's lives for 30 years. He sat me on a little brick wall. We were rarely serious together, but for whatever reason this night, I know the reason, we got on a little brick wall outside of my freshman dorm. I can see it right now. And he sat me down. It wasn't far from Crimdale I showed y'all last week. A little ways away around the road. <clears throat> I had gotten hired on. I'd done an audition, gotten hired to sing a series of about 700 shows with the company. And man, I thought I was it. And my buddy sat me down. And he said, you got to stop this, man. He said, our boys don't even want to hang out with you right now. Because it's all about this job. It's all about these shows and all. He said, we love you, man. We're proud of you, but you got to stop this, man. It's one of the hardest conversations I've ever been a part of. I was mad at him. I wanted to punch him in the face. 
until God used what he said to me to bring true conviction into my heart and realize, you know what, big boy, you're not that good. It's not about you. And if you want to have real friends in this world, it can never really be all about you because that turns people off, guys. And my friend's conversation 30 years later still means something to me. And some of y'all need to get some people you care about in your friend or family group, and you need to have a hard conversation with them. Because I'm telling y'all, the Bible could not be clearer about this issue. Pride goes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. And I needed a good old tongue lashing from my friend. Better the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy. Some of y'all need to be a Christian friend to somebody. And I try to tell our team all the time, Jeff knows we talk about it all. Let's stay out of God's way, boy. It's not about us. 5,000 people last weekend. Y'all see the numbers? They're off the charts. But if I thought that was for one second because of me or about me, I think the hand of the Lord just goes, okay, big boy, you try it on your own down there. Failure. Abject failure every time. Jesus humbled himself so that we could trust him. And one day God could exalt us too. Find your full identity in Christ alone and avoid the pitfalls of pride. Stand with me. The invitation's real simple. Now you can't be prideful enough to stay in your seat. If you need to pray for yourself or someone else, I've already, already dealt with the situation this morning. This morning that without radical change, there will be fall. This morning, if you need to come for yourself, and you say, well, what will they think of me? Well, that's prideful, suck it up, buttercup. You need to come for yourself. Many of you, though, probably have someone that's come to your mind, someone whose relationships are not right, whose identity is out of line. Their identity is not centered in the Lord. It's centered in things that just don't matter, temporal things. What else is eternal besides him, by the way? Anything else is less important. I'm going to ask you to do what the first service did, and it was a beautiful picture here. If you need to lift up somebody, I want you to lift them up, and then I want you to love them enough to do what my friend did for me. Sit them on the wall and tell them what's up. I love you enough, friend, to tell you this is what I'm seeing and this is what others are seeing in you. And we love you and care about you. And we're proud of you, but you got to watch that in your own heart. And if you know somebody that's messing around or doing something foolish, the fall is on the horizon. Well, that's private. That's between. No such thing in the Christian life. Get over it. I'm going to ask you to come as an intercessor. I'm going to ask you to pray for them, and I'm going to ask you to ask God to give you courage to write them a letter, give them a call, better yet, sit them down face to face and say, I love you enough to tell you you are dangerously close to the pitfalls of pride. Thank you so much for watching us today. God is doing absolutely amazing things in and through our Grace Baptist Church family. If you'd like to share anything the Lord is doing in your life, feel free to reach out to us through our website or our app. And if you're ever in the Knoxville area, come by and worship with us and our family of faith here at Grace Baptist Church.